Good morning, everybody. Will you stand as we begin worship this morning? Your love is like radiant diamonds bursting inside. We cannot contain your love will. Surely come find us I'm blazing wildfires Singing your name God of mercy Sweet love of mine I have surrendered To your desire Be the soul Across the skies, these hallelujahs be multiplied. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Welcome this morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Uh, <laughs> uh, the first song was multiplied, and it was just a happy accident that today is dedication. I had, it was, yeah. Uh, I'd like to personally wish all the mothers uh, uh, just a, a happy Mother's Day. It is so, so neat the way moms sacrifice for their families. Um, it's just a, 
a great reflection of, of God's love and mercy, the way you moms work. You guys are the hardest working people, um, and it's moms are the reason that reason that husbands work um, or can function, actually. So happy Mother's Day. So why don't, if you have a mom around you next to you, why don't you give them a little wink and a smile and say happy Mother's Day? again, everyone. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers. Uh, my kids uh, surprised their mother today by making her breakfast in bed and walking up, and I was like, I didn't have to do anything. This is great. This is two years in a row, so <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, I'm joined up here by Jenny Holiday, our Tot Town director, and several families. This morning, we're going to get to celebrate child dedication together, and if you've never been to a, a child dedication here at Hopevale, um, they're a very special thing, and I, I just I love being able to do this, especially on Mother's Day. Um, today, during child dedication, there's going to be three commitments that, uh, that are going to be made. There's a commitment from uh, the families to their children to dedicate their children to the Lord. We, uh, this is a, a moment where parents can give their child back to God and say, God, we are dedicating this child to you to raise them in the best way we can to follow you. Um, this is also a commitment from the family. Secondly, uh, of themselves to the Lord, um, not just their child's Lord, but themselves to the Lord, saying that we are going to, as a family, going to raise this child the best we can to grow up, to follow Jesus, and, and to uh, get, you know, place them in, a, in the best environment we can to help them understand who Jesus is and, and what God wants from their lives. And then the third commitment that we make um, is actually our commitment as a church, that we're making a commitment to these families that we're going to assist them, we're going to equip them, we're going to support them, we're going to pray for them, we're going to be there for them. And so that's what child dedication means here this morning. And you may notice that there are other couples here on the stage with us. These couples are representing us, the congregation, as we're partnering with these families with our encouragement and prayers. So this morning we're going to start off with the couples introducing themselves. We'll start on this side. Good morning. I'd like to introduce a Felbin basketball team. We've made it to five, including myself. This is my wife, Dina, and in my arms is Joshua, this is Andrew, Caleb, and then this is Matthew Feldman. Good morning. I'm Sarah Bergulio. This is Easton, Andy, Debbie, and Dave Opelowski. My name is uh, Brent Eaton. This is my wife, Ashley. Um, our oldest, Calvin, and today we are dedicating Landon. <laughs> Morning. My name is Scott Wiley. I'm here today with my wife, Kim, and we are here to dedicate James and Zachary. Good morning. This is my wife, Joni, my beautiful daughter, Caitlin, and my son, Liam, and my name is Will. What beautiful families, right? This is amazing. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's go to a time of prayer and, and dedication of these children to the Lord. God, we, uh, we thank you for a morning like today where we can uh, we could come, we can celebrate a day like Mother's Day, but also on this special occasion being able to celebrate child dedication and be able to, um, to dedicate these children back to you. They're a gift from you, and we acknowledge that, and um, we just want to present them back to you and say, you know, we're going to do the best that we can as families to raise these children um, uh, in the knowledge of you, to help them understand who you are and uh, what it means to truly follow Jesus. And so, God, I pray for Brian and Tina. I pray for Andrew and Sarah and Brent and Ashley, Scott and Kimberly, Will and Joni. I, just, I pray that um, you'd be with them, that you would encourage them, that you'd help um, us as a church to stand by them and equip them and prepare them um, for what it means to raise their children in a godly home and uh, to help show them who you are and what you want for their lives. And so, God, we pray for these families. You know, parenting is not an easy task. And so, uh, God, we just pray that, um, that they would um, 
they would feel your guidance and feel our support as a church in raising these kids to, uh, to follow you. And Lord, we also lift up to you these children, Matthew, Easton, Landon, Zachary, James, and Liam. What an honor it is to stand here with the families and partner with them as they dedicate these children to you. We pray their hearts will always be tender towards you and towards spiritual things at a young age. We know you have plans for them, and those plans are good. May they trust you, grow in you, and be the women and men that you desire them to be. And Father, as a congregation, may we take our responsibility of encouraging these families and supporting them to heart. We promise to pray for them and to be an example of your love to them. And we ask all this in your name, Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, let's give these uh, families a hand. Way to go, guys. He's still sleeping. He slept through the whole thing. That's great. (laughs) Awesome. Um, Just one quick announcement before we uh, take this morning's offering. So if the uh, ushers will come forward as we take this morning's offering. Um, Get to know Hopevale is next week. If you've been coming to our church for a while and you would like to know more about it, three questions specifically, who we are as a church, what we believe, and how you fit into all of that, uh, get, to Hope, get to Know Hopevale is next week at 9.30. It's a change. It's usually later, but it's at 9.30 um, next week. So you can go out to the, the lobby and sign up at the Welcome Center if you're interested in that. Um, and then next week, it'll be the time to do that. So um, let's go this morning to prayer and pray for the offering. God, we, uh, we thank you for how you have um, blessed us um, financially, blessed us with, with all kinds of blessings, but especially as we think about our finances and we want to just give back to you just a portion of what you've given to us out of a cheerful heart saying, God, we want, um, we thank you for what you've, you've blessed us with and we want to bless somebody else with it. And so, um, God, I pray that as uh, we do that, that we would see you multiply ministry, not only here in Saginaw, but all around the world through what we give. And God, thank you for a time that we can dedicate children back to you. And um, uh, God, we just uh, pray for the rest of this service as Dan comes in and uh, preaches later. Uh, God, just have our hearts, our hearts open to what you want to communicate to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Through endless days. 
as we continue to worship. first cry till my final breath. Your plan for me doesn't change, although I might change the route. You're always recalculating, so I say, here I am, Lord.
become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let's sing out, Holy Spirit. have a seat. Um, that's been a great day. It has been an awesome service to share together as a church family, to see those parents and children um, up here and, and committing themselves to the Lord. Uh, I know I've said this uh, at dedications before, but when you see just all these parents and children crammed up here on the stage, it Reminds me of that line in Jaws, I think we need a bigger boat, right? I, I think we need a bigger stage, because this is great stuff, really. It's just awesome. You know, let me just say this, too. You know, to be here on Sunday and, and Mother's Day Sunday, I want to recognize, just for all the women here, that Mother's Day can be a really emotional day, and not for all the reasons people generally think, right? So some of you moms are really maybe have a sense of joy and gratitude for the gift of life and children that he has entrusted into your care. But, you know, there's other situations. There's moms who are feeling overwhelmed, who feel like they don't quite know what they're doing, and it's really got them scared. There's moms whose children have grown up, and they kind of are beating themselves up because it's like, I didn't quite do what I should have done, and maybe are anxious about how their adult children's lives are turning out. Then there's women here who want to be moms, but for unable, for one reason or another, unable to, right? That's real. And then there's women here who just have very complicated relationships with their own moms, and they're sorting through that. That's just the blur of emotions that can happen on a Hallmark holiday like Mother's Day, right? And so 
The importance of worship every Sunday, but a Sunday like this, is to come here to sing a song like All the Way My Savior Leads Me and to realize that Jesus Christ, our Savior, wants to be with you in all the seasons of life, right? And that he's with us, not just in the joys and the celebrations, but he's with us in those valley times of sorrow and disappointment and heartache and confusion. As a matter of fact, I could argue from Scripture that he is maybe even closer to you in those moments. God is near, the Scripture says, to the brokenhearted. And so just grateful for all the women here today and trust that the Lord will bring that deep ministry as Adam and the team led of the Holy Spirit, who is known as the Comforter, into your life today. Well, last week, We kicked off a new message series on anger, and as we continue on today, there's something i got to admit you up front. You know, sometimes it is incredible to see how the timing of a certain message series meshes so well with when exactly it happens. You ever notice that? You're like, wow, that that was just for me at this right time. Now, I think that happens not because, you know, we're overly clever here. Rather, God somehow is able to take you know, specific passages and themes, and they just seem to intersect perfectly with what we might be going through personally at the time. I love when that happens, and I know many of you can relate to that phenomenon in your own life, right? But then there are those other times, right? Kind of like now, actually, when a series on anger just happens to fall on Mother's Day, right? Really, what kind of pastor would plan something like that? Mother's Day is like the Disney world of holidays, the happiest day in the world. It is supposed to be about hugs and kisses and butterflies and rainbows and not such a downer topic like anger, right? So let me just say right up front, I blew it, right? I blew it. Not the best timing in the world. My bad. And yet having said that, let's be honest, moms can get upset at times, right? They can, and not only that, but kids can get all mad at their moms as well. And that includes kids of all ages, 3, 13, 30, and beyond. And so you've got this cycle, right? Moms getting frustrated with their kids, kids getting ticked off at their moms, and it keeps on going and going and going. Case in point, came across this brief video that I think a lot of you moms can relate to when it comes to this mom-kids cycle of frustration and ways that you try to deal with it. Really quick, let's take a look. Over two million views, people. There's something in that that connects, you know. There is nothing like pulling out the iPhone in the middle of a total toddler meltdown, right? And as I was watching that, I'm thinking, this can go one of two ways, right? Either it's going to work or you're signing up for years of therapy, right? One or the other, right? It just can't go any other ways. Well, hopefully that has softened the blow a little bit as we go on to talk about anger, and to do so from God's perspective. Now, last week when we opened this series, I laid a foundation to help us understand what the Bible has to say about anger by sharing with you two essential biblical principles. So just to review, here they are. The first one is this, that when we think about anger, God's anger is always good. God's anger is always good. We looked into the scriptures and we saw that while God is love and holy and just, he is never described in the Bible as anger. God is not anger. Now, does he get angry? Yes, but that's different than saying that God's fundamental disposition toward us is one of anger. No, if anything, the Bible says in numerous places that the Lord is slow to anger. We saw this passage last week, great verse, Psalm 103.8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. 
And so as we better try to understand who God is and what he's like, we need passages like these to shape our minds and our hearts because they help give us greater insight into the nature of God and his own anger. And so with that in mind, I shared this last week as well, which to me needs to be a necessary part of how we as Christians see God. Here it is. That because God is love and holy and just, he is able to be angry at the right things in the right way at the right time for the right reasons in the right proportions. It's so different than how we see and experience human anger, right? But God, no. If, and if we had his all-knowing wisdom, his all-seeing perspective, and his all-perfect character, then every time we saw him get angry, it would make complete sense to us. Because we know we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world that's filled with people who are bent towards selfishness, and that includes us, people who don't always love, people who don't always follow God's way, and so as a result, others can suffer. And when that happens, God doesn't passively sit by and ignore it. No, God, our God experiences righteous anger toward every evil and injustice in this world. Now, we might question his timing. We might wonder why he chooses to withhold the expression of that righteous anger. But Scripture tells us that we can be confident that God is engaged with, not withdrawn from, the affairs of this world. So God's anger is always good. And then second, related to that, we also saw that not all of our anger is bad. Not all of our anger is bad. Anger is a complicated thing. Many times it's influenced by the curse of sin and the stain of selfishness that we inherited from our original ancestors, Adam and Eve, a curse that, apart from Jesus, has been perpetuated by every single human being since then, including you and me. And this can be a big part of our anger, and yet the Bible also says that we're created in God's image. We bear his likeness, which means that there are some times when we, too, are able to get angry the right things or in the right way or at the right time or for the right reasons or in the right proportions. We can. Not always, right? But sometimes. So for some of you here, just even knowing that is an incredibly liberating concept, right? It's not a free pass to justify all our anger, but by the same token, it helps dispel this myth that good people or good Christians are never supposed to get angry, you know, listen, as long as we live in a fallen, messed up world, as long as injustice, unfairness, abuse, cover-ups, dishonesty, deception continue around us, we're going to get upset. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I've heard it said before that the opposite of love isn't hate, but it's indifference. The Apostle Paul himself says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. We'll talk more about that at the end of this series, about legitimately righteous human anger. But for now, what I want you to know is simply this. Not all of our anger, not all of your anger is bad. So we have these two foundations, right? God's anger is always good, not all of our anger is bad. Like I said last week, it's not everything you need to know about anger, but it's a great place to start. Because if you don't, wow, 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 wow. Time out. I'm getting some water. I'll be right back, okay? (laughs) Don't be mad at me. Okay. (laughs) See, these foundations really give us a better understanding on how to handle anger, not just for processing everything else you're going to hear in this series, but also for working through anger issues in your own life. And so as we move on today, we're going to build off of what I shared last week by adding another essential biblical truth to this foundation, okay? One more thing I want you to know in understanding anger. Actually, it's not so much an addition. It's rather more like a revision. So if our original two truths are these, that God's anger is always good and not all of our anger is bad, then the revised version, or, you know, like the 2.0 edition of this, would be God's anger is always good, not all of our anger is bad, but a lot of it is. A lot of it is. A lot of our anger is bad, and it's this little phrase right here at the end where we need to spend the rest of our time today. Not all of our anger is bad, but a lot of it is. You know, if you took a time to do a survey through the entire Bible from cover to cover, if you read every passage that had to do with human anger, you'd come away with the distinct impression that human anger is a problem. 
It's a problem, one that is usually selfish, unjustified, anger that's hard to control, anger that often hurts others for no good reason. That is the testimony of Scripture when it comes to human anger. I mean, think about it. You go back to the beginning of the Bible, back to Adam and Eve and their two sons, Cain and Abel, and you see that just a few years after sin first enters the world, there is a conflict between the two brothers where jealous anger on the part of one leads to the murder of the other. Then you go on in the Gospels, the story of Jesus, and you see the seething hatred of the religious hierarchy that had it out for Jesus, so much so that this hatred led them to do whatever it took to make sure he was put to death. And then you look in the Apostle Paul's writings and his beautiful exposition in 1 Corinthians 13 on the nature of love. And in the heart of this chapter, as he describes what love is really like in verse 5, he says that love doesn't dishonor others, nor is love self-seeking, nor is love easily angered, nor does love keep an ongoing record of the wrongs that others commit against us. Love does not do these kind of things, but anger does. Anger keeps records. Selfish, unrighteous anger does. Now listen, I'm glad we talked about those times when our anger is legitimate because it needs to be part of how we understand anger. But like I alluded to before, we're not God. So while he is able to be angry at the right things in the right way, at the right time for the right reasons in the right proportions, the same cannot be said about you. It cannot be said about me. No, sometimes, actually a lot of times, We don't get angry at the right things, do we? I mean, when the car in front of us at a red light doesn't move right away when it turns green, we're really going to start World War III over that? A lot of times we don't get angry in the right way. Some of us impulsively fly off the handle at the slightest of offenses. Others of us go into total silent treatment mode. We freeze out those who offend us. We freeze them out for days or even weeks on end. And then far too often, we don't get angry at the right time. I think it's safe to say that every person in this room, one time or another, has gotten really angry over something because we jumped to a false conclusion too soon. We can keep on going. Unlike God, we also don't get angry for the right reasons. You've heard of the kick the dog phenomenon, right? You have a rough day at work, things don't go your way, so you come home and you take out your frustrations on your spouse or on your child, or maybe even out on the dog. And then finally, we don't always get angry in the right proportions, do we? We have this incredible ability to make proverbial mountains out of molehills. So our teenager backs out of the garage, they clip the side view mirror off, and we act like they just joined ISIS or something, right? (laughs) See, God's got this righteous anger thing down pat, but we don't. We don't, and it's that part of our anger that we need to explore further today. So where do we go from here? Well, it's a good time now to just talk about the nature of anger and what makes us upset. What I'm about to talk is going to sound a little technical, but it's worthwhile because I think a lot of us carry around a lot of assumptions about anger that just aren't true. Anger is very complex. It doesn't just affect us emotionally. It also affects us mentally, physically, spiritually, relationally. Yet most of the times, we just bunch all that together, don't we, right? Not only that, but because it's all bunched together, we assume that we don't have any choice in the matter when it comes to getting angry. So we say things like, well, it just happens. I can't help myself. What do you want me to do about it? And so it's thoughts and reactions like these about our anger that we need to reexamine. So for starters, what is anger? How do you define it? Well, here's what a few people have to say. Webster's Dictionary says that anger is a strong feeling of displeasure and usually of antagonism, anger as a feeling. Author and counselor Gary Chapman says that anger is a response to some event or situation in life that causes irritation, frustration, pain, or other displeasure. And then Kristen Professor Um, Robert Jones gets a little more complex. He says that anger is a whole person active response. I like that term whole person because when you get upset, it's not just about your emotions. It affects your mental state. It affects your, your, your physical state, right? Active response of negative moral judgment against perceived, hold on to that word as well, evil. And I'm sure if we took the time 
you could come up with your own definition of anger as well. But for me, I'm not so much interested in defining what anger is. After all, you know better than anyone else when you get angry, right? Rather, I want us to dig deeper and try to understand why it happens. What is it that sets us off and what can we begin to do about it? So with that in mind, let me walk you through what's involved in us getting angry. Four steps, so to speak, that I want to mention here. So here's the first step. Provocation. Provocation. That's how it starts. Something outside of you provokes you, right? You know, when you go back to those definitions, there's a key word in there that I think is really important, and that word is response, right? Anger always involves some kind of response, some kind of reaction to something. Anger never happens in a vacuum. Now, there's some kind of trigger event that sets everything else into motion. A spilled drink, a lost jacket, a bad grade, a flat tire, a harsh word, a missed anniversary, a broken promise, a shattered dream, the list is endless, right? See, if you're going to better understand your anger, then you need to be able to trace through all your thoughts and feelings and emotions to get back to what it really was that made you so upset. And by the way, you need to know that's a lot harder than it looks like. Because a lot of time with anger, the thing really isn't the thing. Well, that's really profound, right? The thing really isn't the thing. What do I mean by that? Well, take the example of a bad grade. You learn that your teenager bombed a major test in a very important class, and you lose it, right? Now, it was the bad grade that set everything off, but it's likely that your anger isn't just about the bad grade. No, maybe it's that you nagged them to study, but they didn't put in the time, and you don't like how they defied you. Or maybe you're worried about their future. You're afraid they're not going to graduate or they're not going to get into the college that you think they should go to. Or maybe you want them to do well in school because you like how that reflects on you and how your self-worth is tied to their performance, right? There can be a lot of reasons for your anger, but it all starts with that trigger event, that provocation that sets you off. So anger begins with provocation, some kind of provoking event that happens from the outside in to you. Now from there, the next step is probably one that we don't most, don't, most of us don't think about. That if I put you on the spot and asked you, what do you think comes after provocation, you'd probably just answer getting angry, right? Something happens to you, you're upset. One, two, simple as that. Now that does eventually take place, but there's something else in between that. Something else that happens before that. And it's so critical for us to understand this because it's the difference between us handling our anger well and us handling our anger poorly. And that next step is interpretation. Provocation and interpretation. How do we interpret? How do we process? How do we think about that provoking incident? See, here's the deal. I could take 10 of you in this room. We go and, and have the same thing happen to each of the 10 of you. And you know what? It's very possible that you would interpret that same event in 10 different ways. And it wouldn't be a surprise at all. Why? Because there's so many factors that shape our interpretation. Maybe you're stressed. Maybe you're relaxed. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're well-rested. Maybe you're hungry. You know, grab a Snickers, right? Or, you know, maybe you're full. Maybe you've had a long string of disappointments recently, or maybe you feel like you're on top of your game. Maybe you're in a good relationship, or maybe one just ended. Maybe you generally believe in people, or maybe you have trust issues. Maybe you try to look at life through the lens of the Bible, or maybe there's some other mindset, some other worldview that predominantly shapes your overall approach to life. Do you see what I'm doing here? There's so much that goes into how we interpret the things that happen to us or around us, and all that influences our anger. It's a split-second kind of thing, but it's in there. And this is so important because it's here where the separation between God's anger and our anger begins, our inconsistent and often unrighteous anger. So let me give you an example. You know, sometimes we get mad at other people because we jump to conclusions and we don't have all the facts. So a spouse says they'll be home for dinner by 6 o'clock. But then 6 o'clock rolls around, 6.30, 7 o'clock, they're still not there, they haven't called, there's no explanation. And so the other spouse just gets angrier and angrier. And then maybe that waiting spouse, they had a stressful week at work. Maybe they had to make a sacrifice to make sure that they were at home by 6. 
And maybe that couple's marriage hasn't been doing too well recently. But they've already got three or four other past disagreements backlogged that they still haven't worked through, right? And all that plays into our interpretation. So we jump to the conclusion they're selfish, immature, inconsiderate, irresponsible, they don't care, and pretty soon the floodgates of anger fling wide open, right? And yet what really happened? Maybe there was an unexpected last-minute meeting at work. Maybe their cell phone died. Maybe they were in an accident. Maybe they were stopping to pick up desserts. See, one of the differences between God and us is God knows everything, but we don't. We don't, even though we think we do. As flawed, sinful people, we're so good at taking a provoking event and immediately reading a bunch of motives into it, you know? I know what really happened. I know what they were up to. I know the reason why they did that to me, you know? And we just get there, and anger takes off. You know another difference between us and God? We can be selfish, but he can't. We have this innate ability to make everything about ourselves, and so we get mad, right, when someone else in the company gets hired for the job we want because we honestly believe that we are far more qualified. And maybe we are, but maybe we aren't. It's like those you know, horrible singers you see on American Idol, right, who really think they're great, but everyone else is just cringing, right? Sometimes we lack self-awareness. So not only do we not have all the facts, but we also aren't always the most objective. That curse of Adam, that stain of selfishness in us can warp our interpretation of what happens to us. And as a result, we can get unrighteously angry. This, by the way, is you know, the very dynamic of what's going on when Jesus confronts us about the speck and the plank. Many of you know this passage. Let's take a look. Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plague in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? What's Jesus saying? He's saying, you and I, we've got interpretation problems, Right? We don't always get it right. We don't always keep things in the right proportion. And so he confronts us. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Right? Be honest about your own faults. Then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, you and I, we can't help but notice the tiniest flaws in others while at the same time pass over major issues going on in our own life. That's just who we are. Now, there's so much more we could <clears throat> talk about what's under this interpretation heading because there's so much that influences it. My point is this. You know, you don't have to or you don't always have the right to respond in anger just because a certain thing provokes you. So this whole I can't help myself, I didn't have a choice just doesn't always fly when it comes to our anger. Why? Because our interpretations aren't always right. Well, that then leads me to the next stage, a couple more. Third is this. It's the experience of anger. The experience of anger. Once something happens to us, once we interpret that something, by the way, those two steps, provocation, interpretation, I mean, they practically happen at the same time. So after those take place, that's when we experience the emotion of anger. We feel angry. Now, what I'm about to say is really important because this is where a lot of people get confused about anger, okay? So pay attention. Here we go. There is nothing wrong with angry feelings. Let me say that again. There's nothing wrong with angry feelings. In and of itself, there is nothing wrong or bad or sinful or selfish about the emotion of anger. Think about it. God experiences anger. Jesus, when he walked this earth, experienced anger, and so will we. And so while anger is a hard emotion to experience, it doesn't mean it is a wrong emotion to experience. As a matter of fact, our angry feelings are actually a reminder that we're creating God's image. See, this is why it's so important to peel anger apart like this. Because where our anger can go off the rails isn't at this experience stage, but rather, like we talked about earlier, it's at this interpretation stage. The unrighteousness with our anger comes in how we think about what ticks us off rather than the feelings themselves of being ticked off. Does that make sense? I kind of understand that. 
And yet what? So many of us try to solve our anger issues by fixing or changing or even ignoring our angry feelings. But see, if that's your approach to anger, you're fighting the wrong battle. Which, by the way, is same and true when we have anger in relational conflicts. The main issue isn't the fact that the other person is angry with you. No, it's why they're angry. And yet, because of the emotion of anger, and it's so powerful, especially when we're on the receiving end of it, right? We try to solve the conflict by telling the other person what? Stop being angry with me. Again, wrong approach. This, by the way, is where parent-teen relationships can really fall apart. Teenage child is upset about something. They take their anger and frustration out on their parent, and the parent responds usually by yelling back at them and ordering them, what, to stop being angry. Now, I get why that happens in the heat of emotion. I've been there myself, right? But that's not the way to go about it. No, that kind of approach is what? Only going to further escalate the problem. So yes, the experience or the emotion of anger is part of this chain of events that happens with us, but it's not the differentiator, right, between our righteous anger and our unrighteous anger, which leads me then to the fourth and final stage in this process, and that's our response, right? Our response. We've gotten to the point where we're experiencing anger on the inside. Now the question is, what are we going to do with that anger? What are you going to do with it? It's the difference between angry feelings versus angry actions, right? Angry feelings versus angry actions. And it's here in the response stage where we can really blow it. You know, the four steps we've covered, the Bible talks more about this one than all the rest. And Scripture won't take you to task for feeling angry, but Scripture will be quick to condemn you for responding in anger, especially when it's unjustified. See, I think it's really important for us to understand the difference between the experience of our anger and the expression of our anger, because while the Bible is clear to differentiate the two, the culture and most everything else we read about anger lumps those two together. And so maybe you've heard things like, you know, the unhealthiest thing you can do with your anger is to keep it stuffed in. No, you need to let it out. You need to express it. Let people know how you're feeling. That's what's best with, you know, for you, Right? That's what a lot of people think. Now, I agree that you can't ignore your angry feelings, right? That you need to address what's going on inside of you when you're upset. But that doesn't mean that the best thing for you to do is to immediately let it out, right? No. Angry feelings do not have to lead to angry actions. Actually, Scripture usually counsels the opposite. Look at these. Proverbs 12, verse 16 Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. Proverbs 29, 11, fools give full vent to their rage, right? But the wise bring calm in the end. Now, one of my favorite passages when it comes to dealing with anger. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I'm always convicted when I read this passage because I usually do the opposite, right? Quick, I'm, I'm slow to listen, right? I'm quick to speak. I'm quick to become angry. And we think we have full right to our anger. We think, you know, we're actually being productive with our anger. And James says, you know, the anger of man, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Angry feelings, angry actions, they're not the same. And knowing the difference between the two can lead you to handling your anger in a God-pleasing way. So here we go. I'm going to land the plane. Why do we get angry? Here are four steps again. Let's take a look. Provocation, interpretation, experience, and response. And next week, we'll look at these further when it comes to us growing as Christians and changing in how we deal with our anger. But for today, here's what I want you to understand, that in these four stages of why we get angry, there are a couple that we can't control. We can't control provocations, right? We can't control the trigger events that happen to us. We can't. You know that. I know that, right? And you know what else we can't control? We can't control the experience of anger, 
The emotions that happen to us when we get upset, that's all part of how God has made you. And to try to shut those out, to try to pretend they're not there, is going against your design as one who bears the image of God, right? Unless you're going to try to live in a bubble, right? You can't avoid provoking events. And when you're provoked and when you process that, you're going to feel angry. You can't control that. And to try to control that is the wrong way to tackle anger. But you know what? The Bible makes it clear that Christians are responsible for the other two. We're responsible for how we interpret those provoking events and how we respond to those events, right? Our outward response as we experience anger within, whether it's our actions, whether it's our words, or anything else. And see, when it comes to those, God doesn't let us off the hook. God doesn't let us off the hook for those. When it comes to your anger, especially unrighteous anger, you are not a helpless victim, right? God doesn't buy the whole, I couldn't help myself, I didn't have a choice, lame excuses that we give. There are no asterisks in the Bible when it comes to your specific situation when God's going to give you a pass for your selfish, unrighteous anger. Again, I'm I'm not talking about righteous, justified anger. We are capable of that, right? But we need to be honest. That is usually the exception, not the rule for us when it comes to our anger. No, I'm talking about the times when we say, well, if you were only in my shoes. If you only knew what they did to me, you would respond the exact same way. You know, that kind of reasoning. So listen, instead of blaming other people for our unrighteous anger, instead of excusing it away, instead of mounting our case, piling up reasons to justify that, instead of all that, we just need to own up to it, right? We need to take responsibility for that, that when our interpretations and our responses are unjustified and ungodly, we need to be able to come before God with a humble heart, with a repentant heart, and just say, God, I thought this about this other person, or I said this about them. I did this, and Lord, I am sorry. That's where change begins. That is the heart of confession, and this is the first step we need to take when it comes to growing and how we handle our anger as Christians. And until we're willing to do this before the Lord, and oftentimes willing to do this with others we've wronged, we're never going to make significant progress in dealing with our anger. Now, I'm not saying you have to over-apologize for more than you should, But you do need to take on and own up what is appropriately yours, right? So important for us to understand. Instead of pointing fingers outward, it begins with us. That area of interpretation and response. But here's the best part, because when we do these things, when we humbly own up to how we've blown it, we come to the Lord, we will find, we will experience his mercy, his forgiveness. And as we do that, you know what? We tap into the power that God wants to give us to make us more and more like Jesus. Because as the Bible says, it's when we are weak, then we become strong. Let's pray together. Lord, um, this is a tough topic. tough topic because it involves real life situations either what someone has done to us someone has done something to us or we've done something to them and we've upset them they've upset us some of us right now are in the midst of a conflict and you know we don't like the way we've handled it and we've got all the reasons why you know we acted that way but deep down inside we know we've blown it And yet our stubborn pride won't let go. Father, I just pray that for all of us here, beginning with me, we'd come to you not with our fists tightly clenched with all the reasons and good excuses we have or the blame and the finger pointing, but we would just let those hands go, open up and surrender, and just say, God, we're sorry. We need your help for the things we've said and done and expressed to other people, to you. And we want to let that go. And God, thank you that when we come to you with honesty and a repentant heart, you don't cast us out. You welcome us in by your grace 
and your mercy. And when that happens, we discover that your words are really true, that when we are weak, then we are strong. So I pray for that. I pray for us. We would take that to heart, and you would work that in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. Next week, we will continue on in our anger series and talk about the process of change in our own lives. But as you go from here, may you go with the blessing of our holy God. God bless you, and have a wonderful Mother's Day.